Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Nick. I am joined, of course, by Dylan. Hi, Dylan. What's up? And we are joined once again by Jeremiah Beaver, aka Take the Ring. How's it going, man? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Pretty well, pretty Not well. Bad. And uh, we're here to continue our lengthy discussion about Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. Uh, thanks to everybody who listened to part one. We've still got quite a lot to talk about here. So I guess we'll just go ahead and pick up where we left off. Uh, the last thing we talked about was Laura discovering that the pages were ripped out of her diary at which point she goes to Harold Smith and expresses a lot of fear about Bob and he tries to comfort her a little bit and she is just completely freaked out. And at this point she runs back home. And the next thing we get as she's on her way up to her room is a truncated version of a scene that I desperately wish was in the final film, which is this terrifying scene with the ceiling fan where it's just an up close shot like an extreme close-up of laura's face as she is seemingly hypnotized by the dreaded ceiling fan who is saying some stuff to her i think it says like i want to taste through your mouth all this sort of stuff i this is so goddamn creepy this is like one of the creepiest things lich has ever done in my opinion I remember on like one of the earlier episodes when we were doing the return, we had talked about the ceiling fan and how it is so evocative and and carries such a weight to it. Although you know it doesn't necessarily, or I think we had said it doesn't really like function in any sort of nefarious way. And then through watching Fire Walk with me a couple times, um, I think that it, it actually does because it's it's that the sound of it whirring is present through the scene where Lara realizes that Bob is Leland. So it's like this really, uh, like it, like it, that, like just realizing like, Oh, that's right. That is, that is sort of, it's, it's, uh, uh, like one of its true, like points of horror. And yeah, just this, this little bit we get here where, where we get the, uh, sound of Bob slash the fan, just sort of trying to, I don't know, it's like a dissociated reality for Laura, but you can see that she's resisting. It is It is truly uh, horrifying. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, I can't remember. Did they, you know, they probably referenced it early on in the original show, or at least you see it. And I, I think it was just, you know, kind of a source of inspiration. And then in the, you know, the, the pilot, because it's in the shot where, you know, Laura's mom has the vision or remembers. But then um, I think, yeah, in Fire Walk With Me, they definitely expanded that. Um, he, he expanded that idea. And, yeah, so now you've got this thing. Like, I always took it as a – it's, I mean, indirectly, d- directly tied to Bob. 
basically because you know in the in the original show you know Leland is kind of this like you know after Bob leaves him he's like oh you know I don't don't remember anything you know and like the show kind of picks paints him as a, a you know a good guy that was inhabited by something evil it's more complicated than that obviously but then in Fire Walk with Me is what really kind of like so it's part of I believe it's part of Leland's like ritual rape right like uh yeah so he gives sarah mm-hmm, palmer sure. i think we see it later but he gives sarah palmer the like a sleeping pill you know he, he obviously gives her something to that's drug right? yeah the milk yeah. right that's obviously drugged and then he turns on the ceiling fan and laura has a reaction and um sorry i'm getting ahead of myself but uh getting that you know we see that stuff later but yeah this scene in the missing piece is pretty much if I had any doubt before, after seeing this scene and the missing pieces, it was, uh, you know, an aha moment. Like, yes, okay, for sure. Bob, it, Bob, this is another clue of Bob wanting to be her. The ceiling fan is tied to Bob. And this is um, kind of them having a, a, a dialogue back and forth, similar to like what's in the, the diary novel, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, this the fan is amazing to me. I, I'm actually in the middle of watching somebody react to the entire series on YouTube right now, and um, they just did their like fire walk with me reaction. And the first time that the fan is shown, this person was just like, "Oh no, 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 not the fan! Don't show me the fan! Don't show right. me that!" And it's just like amazing to me the way that the show trains you to find this mundane imagery just incredibly ominous you know because the fan isn't like it's just a fan there's no like there's there's not a demon that pops out of it it's really just it's just like it's more the sound than anything and um i just think it's incredible the way that lynch is able to conjure so much dread with uh something so mundane (laughs) right it's one of many examples of that yeah yeah um, so yeah, the next little scene we get here is basically just some connective tissue to the double R scene after it, which is Cooper and Albert back at the Philadelphia FBI station, and Cooper basically predicts the murder of Laura here, where he you know describes her as like a blonde high school girl, etc. And Albert is like um, sort of quizzing him about it to to test his. Uh, I guess to test his foresight in some way. Yeah, and it's just a weird um, a weird little instance of it being intimated that Cooper already has some sort of some sort of connection to the supernatural, some sort of uh, way in which he is keyed into the spirit realm, um, which wasn't which was like hinted at in the show, but I feel like through this premonition it's made more explicit. What do you guys think? Yeah, he it's it's clear from this and uh, the dream sequences later on that Dale has some sort of clairvoyance to him. Um, obviously, you know, watching the first season of the show, the extent of that is, like you said, it's sort of maybe hinted at, or there's you know he has quirks about him, but there's nothing indicating that he has such an overt sense of what's going on and that he even foresaw this whole thing happening. Like, this wasn't necessarily a case he was just assigned to out of the blue. This was something that he actually foresaw a year in advance, and uh, we can assume that he 
sort of did his research in that time up to up to the murder of Laura Palmer. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it is it does sort of it fits itself into the film very well with that um, that like you said that connective tissue to the scene after it. Um, but yeah, I think that right off the bat the character of Dale Cooper in Fire Walk with Me is presented to us with a much different air than he is in uh the original run. He's a you know, he's he seems at in the very first instance that we see him, you know, he's he's frightened by uh Philip Jeffries or the the emergence of Philip Jeffries. He's confused. He is uh worried about a dream. He he doesn't have like the um, charisma that the Agent Cooper from the original run seems to have, um, and it's just sort of like an interesting juxtaposition, seeing seeing him in this in this form, um, which much more resembles uh, some of his more stoic uh, forms of himself that we see in the Return than it does in the original run. But um, yeah, that's about that's about what I got. Yeah, I. Um... Yeah, and this is also like the only scene that connects to. I, I believe this might be the only scene that jumps out of the Laura story. I mean, obviously, yeah, it comes right back to it. But um, you know, I uh, I love the all the Philadelphia FBI stuff. This is a great um, Albert moment. So if like we were talking, there's not a whole lot of levity. There's maybe two jokes in the whole movie. So this is the second mm-hmm. joke. Uh, yeah. You know, and he's like, he's like. You know, Jesus Christ, you're talking about half the high school girls in America, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Great, great Albert moment. And um, uh, it, it's also kind of a I, – I don't think this was intentional at all, but it, it, this scene always reminded me as – reminded me of um, – there's a moment in the original return towards the, when they were getting ready to bust Ben Horn and Cooper's like, well, wait a minute, I don't know, blah, 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 and – and uh, Harry Truman's like, you know, Cooper, look, I've put up with the dreams. I put up with the stuff like, you know, kind of has like a come to Jesus moment. Right. So uh, I just I think it's funny. This is Albert like, all right, here's Cooper going again with the dreams. Like, all right, bud, had enough of the dream dream stuff. Tell us something I can use. You know, tell me something I can use kind of thing. But anyway, I love Albert. And this is like the only really the only, you know, he's got a couple lines in here. So it's it's great. Mm-hmm. Yep, this is all we get of Albert. Um, yeah, so the way that this connects to the next scene is that Cooper says um, about the girl that we know as Laura, he's saying she's preparing a great abundance of food. And we cut immediately from there to the Double R Diner, where Laura is picking up the meals on wheels that we know that she's going to deliver to uh mrs chalfont if i remember correctly right yeah in the original run yeah in the original in the original series Mm -hmm. um and uh this is some of the only double r stuff that we're gonna get in this film this is our this is one of two moments i think that we get with shelly uh the other coming with leo a little bit later and it is Mm -hmm. our our only appearance of uh my sweet queen norma unfortunately um <laughs> uh, just a brief uh brief glimpse here and uh so yeah uh shelly is sort of helping uh pack the the meals on wheels 
into the car and the the real point of the scene is that Laura is confronted by um, Mrs. Chalfont and her grandson who is wearing the uh, mask that is sort of reminiscent of the jumping man and um, this, the grandson has some really creepy dialogue here where he says in sort of a whispered voice the man behind the mask is looking for the book with the pages torn out he is going towards the hiding place he is under the fan now so yeah, Laura is given the framed photo here by Mrs. Chalfont, who tells her like this would look good on your wall, and uh, we're gonna get pretty hot and heavy with this photo in a little bit here. Um, yeah, so Laura she returns home with the photo. She walks slowly up towards her bedroom, and we get another really terrifying moment of Bob sort of emerging from behind her dresser. And to me, this is just like an expertly edited sequence here. Um, it's just a really effective jump scare. <laughs> I always find it really upsetting, mostly because of the, uh, the audio cue, right? Like as mm-hmm. soon as like the second that mm-hmm. Bob enters the frame, there's that really, really loud sound and we get Laura screaming and running away. It's always, I don't know, it gets me every time. It's just super effective. And I always feel a little bit anxious watching this whole scene here. It's 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 good. It's really good oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah, this scene is, I think, where the film really starts to take a turn towards the darkness. Like, mm-hmm. I, I thinking about, you know, Firewalk With Me, like, as, as a whole, it does have this air of being very heavy and depressing and i think harrowing is how you put it nick like it's it's very much that but for the first like hour or so it, it does still main like retain some of the twin peaksiness like i i I've almost like kind of like forgotten about that but like for the first hour or so while there's some you know scary moments it doesn't exactly um crush your soul the way that it does in the last hour and 15 minutes or so but right this this scene um, where Lara first has the um, realization and the immediate denial uh, that Leland is indeed Bob is like, uh, this scene hits me among the hardest of any of the scenes. Uh, I think there's something to be said about, or there's something for me that I've always found like daytime scenes, if executed well, can be far more terrifying than any sort of anything happening like in a, a more... I don't know, traditional nighttime scary scenario. Like the original Halloween, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, has some like really creepy shots of Michael Myers in the middle of the day just like standing behind the bush. And in those mm. ones like that sort of like, it doesn't have to be taking place at midnight. It can be taking place at 1130 in the morning and it's, it's even worse because there's no escape. Like that's the sort of horror and trauma that you, that you feel when Lara is like hiding under that bush just saying no 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 it's not him it's not him it's not him um it it really it's uh and then everything up leading up to that like the just seeing uh Mrs. Chalfont and and her grandson and not only does the does the grandson have the mask of jumping man he also has like that talisman that he holds and I've always sort of thought that those two figures are sort of like a, a Bob Mike scenario, like the kind of 
are the same thing. I'm sorry, not Bob, Mike. Um, like Mike and the arm type relationship where they sort of like fill each other out. Uh, but everything leading up to that, like from the the weird, creepy vibes you get to that, to the to the really intense jump scare of Bob, to then just being left with Lara prone on the grass in the middle of a school day, just breaking down completely. It it uh it, it for sure that this scene is where the the film I think starts to take a turn towards the uh, almost unbearable in terms of how how mm-hmm. emotionally uh, heavy it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what I can add to that. That pretty much sums it all up for me. Just a couple little observations. Uh, I don't know. If in the, speaking of the double R, yeah, it's a real shame there wasn't more uh, Norma. Um, I'm glad we got a little bit more in the missing pieces. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed. So yeah. uh, Heidi in the the German waitress in this, she doesn't have any lines, but she's holding a she's got a bloody nose. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Um, you remember in the so the, I think this serves a couple of functions and I might be reading too much into it but I think the, in the original show you know the the only two lines she has Heidi has is she's late to work because she's too busy jump starting the old man right so that's the that's mm-hmm. the gag with her and of course she she giggles a lot so the, this is just kind of another little like hey this is a little like hey this is the darker side of Twin Peaks. So so not only is the giggly German waitress not giggling like she's got a bloody nose it's, you know what i mean like she's not happy and excited and she's got it. and then i kind of take it as another like signal to how the same way that Laura Laura and Leland's relationship is fleshed out in this one and you know you get a you get a hint of this kind of stuff in the show but you really realize in Firewalk with me that this is basically like a domestic abuse story and I always thought that it was interesting that Heidi, the cheery, giggly German waitress, who's always talking about her husband, and this one, she's in Fire Walk with Me, she's got a bloody nose, and maybe that came from her husband. Mm. Maybe. You know, I mean, that's totally speculation. But regardless, that's another little signal that, you know, we're not in not not in the good side of Twin Peaks, even though we're even though we're back in Twin Peaks and it's better than Deer Meadow, there's still an underbelly of evil going mm-hmm. on here, right? And um but yeah the uh the only other thing is yeah the uh the 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 bob behind the 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 bed thing. So you know I saw this the first time or you know before I saw the original show I saw this so I had no idea what the hell was going on at this point. But this scene for sure just scared the total shit out of me. And it's it's the same as the dumpster scene in Winkies and some moments in Lost Highway. Like he uses like the sa- there's sound and tone and pacing, and it's all like a, a big build up. And then there's like then the you know it's one thing to do a jump scare. A lot of movies do jump scares. We're like ha, ah, you know, this guy behind the corner or whatever. But this is like what why David Lynch stuff just like totally destroys you is because there's there's all this build up with sound intention it's it's all about the right. build up you know yeah not not all but, jump scares uh, yeah, are uh, definitely are created equal i think is the lesson here it's like cat jumps out of a locker or something that's a dumb jump scare that's bad you'll see that in like a million horror movies or like person closes the uh you know the the mirror in the bathroom and there's somebody behind them. It's like, you can see that coming from a mile away, but when it's something like this, it just, it feels a lot more powerful because it, it feels earned, you know? And it's like, Bob is, Bob is like a real fear for Laura. Like it, it has a, uh, 
like it has a purpose within within the text of the film. Yeah, I don't even. I mean, sometimes they qualify. I think as like a jump scare, the way we would we would see them in a horror movie. But other times, I think it's just David Lynch's use of dynamics in in his uh, just film style. Like the like when Lara's reading her diary and she realizes the pages are missing. It's not a jump scare, but it's the same sort of dynamic shift where you go from that that like sort of hip hoppy jazz tune to all of a sudden there's this really loud sound yeah. of, of paper right. ripping and it's super jarring and can really put you on edge in the same way as a jump scare because uh it it it's like dynamically stark to what was coming before it but it, it is also like like you said playing on Lara's real fears in her um like her actual you know, just the things that sh- that could possibly ever go wrong are going wrong in this moment, and you feel that just through a simple sound effect, like a page ripping or something. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and um, like you mentioned, Dylan, she has this really heartbreaking moment where she runs outside and she's hiding underneath the bushes, and she sees Leland walk out of the door, and this is the moment we're led to believe where she realizes once and for all that Bob is in fact Leland and um, boy just Cheryl Lee's acting here is so painful this is like some of her most raw acting that she does in this film with a lot of you know screaming and crying obviously just the um, the look on her face as she looks at Leland is just really really painful it's you know, it, Cheryl Lee gets a lot of love now uh, for her performance. At the time, it was like people sort of thought it was a little bit histrionic and over the top. And um, I can understand that, but I think with moments like these, it's like, man, for somebody that young to be that tapped into this level of emotional pain uh, and give a performance like this um, is really, really remarkable, I think. Agreed. Yeah, I, I don't even know if it's maybe change in attitudes. Uh, like, I think I don't. I mean, I don't know because I wasn't around back then. But I get the sense that, like, uh, as a society, we're a bit more sensitive to like violence towards women, maybe in two thousand eighteen to nineteen, than in uh, nineteen ninety one or two. So, uh, just what may have seemed over the top back then now is actually seeming like a very accurate, relatable portrayal for for anyone who has experienced like unbelievable trauma, like Lara is going mm-hmm. through in this film. Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great observation. I never really thought about it. I I definitely think I I think you're right about that. I mean, I like I said, you know, like I got into this and I was, I was like 15 year old kid. And I'm in like sci-fi and horror, you know, and you don't think about the kind of I, I mean, I I thought about it, but you know, the 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 humans the human element of Laura and the fact that this is really like a a story about abuse and and like there's a lot of stuff going a lot more stuff going on and I also think that um um there's yeah, I think you're right, Dylan. People are looking back and and uh, definitely a lot more sensitive to that kind of stuff. There's also kind of the like Lynchian context. I think that this was so like not Lynchian, but like as a result of this being a David Lynch movie as opposed to the Twin Peaks TV show, like 
the the tone is all weird. You know what I mean? It's like people were people were expecting the the show, and it's one of those like I think people were just shocked by it and didn't know how to take it. And um, plus, yeah, I think that there's definitely um, it's ahead of this film's ahead of its time as far as uh, graphically and accurately portraying uh, this type of abuse story. And I think, I think nowadays there's like an audience for that mm-hmm. or like, or not, right. you know what I mean? Like people are, are definitely, yeah, totally more receptive to this whole, whole thing. I think people are, are going back and reviewing it through that lens for sure. And going, you know, hold, even me, you know, like, mm-hmm. holy crap, <laughs> like just, this is, uh, you know, I didn't get all this stuff when I was 15, but I, I do now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think the reason that the film has sort of, um, lingered in people's minds or the reason that it's been given sort of this reevaluation is be is directly because it takes Laura's story so seriously and humanizes her to such a degree and asks us to live in her shoes a little bit you know what I mean and at, at the time like if you go back and you read some of the initial reviews there's this tone about it that's sort of I don't know, there's sort of a mocking tone to some of it, and sort of a a lack of understanding as to why we should really be sympathetic to Laura Palmer. Like, oh, she's like this bratty, cokehead prostitute, you know, this, like, annoying high school girl, like, who doesn't really have anything to do with the original show beyond just being a dead body. And it's like, well, why do I care about this? Like, why, like, why is this so melodramatic? And, uh, like, reading it now, it all feels a little bit cruel. <laughs> and um, I think people really overlooked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's tough to say. Like, a part of me wants to think it was just, like, a little bit too real for people. Like, I think, I, I think that at the time, people really appreciated the... Um, like the artifice and the goofiness of, of Twin Peaks. And this was just like, why are you throwing in this, like um, this after school special into the world of Twin Peaks? You know, like that, that's, that's very much the vibe that I get from a lot of the, mm-hmm. the negative reviews from the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, again, like it's just a different time. Like, some people were on Twin Peaks uh, burnout, you know, like so the show was a big hit, but, it, you know, it's the show was a big hit, but it didn't last too long. And it like cover Rolling Stone, cover every magazine. Everyone was talking about it, all that stuff for like, you know, like a year straight. It was like the hottest shit mm-hmm. in the whole world. And then then the, then it kind of fell apart for a few different reasons. And then it was like. Okay, David Lynch is going to make a movie. I just, <laughs> I, you yeah, know, nobody it's, wanted it at the time. It sounds like pretentious yeah, Twin or Peaks whatever. Was very but, like, but the, yeah, nobody yeah, wanted yeah, it. Exactly. Twin Peaks was very much out of fashion at that time, and I, for sure. Yeah, and so you got a, a sea full of critics who are just itching to find something mm-hmm. wrong with it. So I think I think your whole ev- audiences, critics, casual viewers, everybody was just like primed to uh 
<laughs> to criticize. Yeah, it was really it, a know. perfect storm of, uh, of factors so, that led to the failure of Firewalk with me. It wasn't just any one thing. It was a lot of stuff. And I think that Lynch had been on right. such a winning streak oh, yeah. to that point and had had so much critical acclaim and won all these awards, you know, Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart and I guess dating back to, you know, even Elephant Man. Um, and I think whenever that happens, I mean, you still see this today, like anytime a filmmaker is on that much of a winning streak, I think, um, there are people who start to really itch for the opportunity to take them down a peg, (laughs) you know? So it's like the second that they do something that isn't really that well received, it's like the blood is in the water and the sharks are going to feast. You know, I I think that that happened a little bit with Lynch and, um, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I think there was just a lot of resentment about the way that the second season of Twin Peaks unfolded. So it all just it just created the perfect environment for this film to fail. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, it like like we mentioned last episode, it really is remarkable the way that people have been able to sort of step back from all that context and take another look at it and appreciate it for what it is and not not be upset about you know what what they felt it should have been at the time, you know, but yeah. And thank, thank God for that. Cause I know we should, I mean, we need to keep moving on, but I just want to say like, uh, thank God for like the internet and millennials and mm-hmm. st- like, I, I totally think this, I totally think this stuff is getting, if you, I mean, you know, criterion releases and stuff like it, it's, it's it's really amazing to have people. So I know people now, younger people that'll watch this now and like, yeah, that was cool or interesting or weird or maybe I didn't like it so much or blah blah blah. But like, totally receptive, mm-hmm. totally open minded, and it's just refre- refreshing because like first first ten or fifteen years of me being a fan, it was just like, oh god, Firewalk with me, I yeah. hated that yeah. movie, <laughs> you know. And now it's like now it's like uh, it's it's a, a classic again, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, like like I mentioned, the the person that I'm watching the the reaction videos for, they watched Firewalk with me like a cup, just like a day or two after finishing the season two finale, and they were just like, "That was great, I loved that, that was amazing," and it was like, uh, you know, yeah, and it's like this <laughs> awesome. person, yeah, and this person, yeah, well, that's how I felt. I don't know, I had a, I had a more complicated thing because like I, you know, obviously I watched it first as I've discussed many times, and I actually I'm ashamed to say I didn't come back to it until like the return was about to come on. Like I didn't want, it was like a good, um, but like seven years before I actually went back and revisited it. Um, because I started seeing all these articles popping up, uh, you know, when the return was about to premiere, like, Oh, um, fire walk with me, you know, David Lynch's unappreciated masterpiece or whatever. And I just, that was the first time that I started really noticing this reversal of opinion on the film. Um, and when I did go back to it again, I was kind of dreading it. Like, I don't know if I, like, what if I don't like this still, but I was like, wow, that it just, it hit me a lot harder than it did at the time. And, um, yeah, I've watched it many times since then. Uh, and I, and I really love it anyways. Um, so yeah, so Laura realizes that Leland is Bob and, from here, she goes and she meets up with Donna. She sort of knocks on her door. Donna opens the door, and here we get a shot of Laura that was actually reused in the return when 
Gordon is at the hotel and he opens the door to meet Albert and he sees that like big, <laughs> like oversized, uh, like holographic projection of, of Laura in the doorway in front of him. Um, Jeremiah, do you, do you have any thought as to why like mm-hmm. that particular shot was reused in that moment in the return? No, <laughs> no, no, uh, haven't really, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, so that shot in the return is during the Laura is the one episode. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called. I believe is the t- title yeah, of the 10. episode. And so you get the, cause the, cause the log lady says it, the log lady tells Hawk, you know, Laura is the one. And I, I mean, I th- who who knows? I mean, I think it's a signal that 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 Gordon Cole obviously is part of some larger plan or goal, or or because he's the director, he's kind of like like the narrator in a way. I don't know. Gordon Cole always seems detached from the action, but he also seems like he knows what's going on. You know, like or like he he has yeah. some deeper understanding about what's going on with you know obviously Blue Rose Task Force, blah blah blah. So I I think that's just like he has a vision of Laura and it's around the time that Hawk, the log lady, tells it to Hawk. And, you know, maybe a clue that Laura, um, uh, you know, so this is post part eight. So post Golden Orb, like just kind of keeping that Laura imagery mm-hmm. alive a little bit or I mean, who knows? Like, I, I really don't know. I don't know why it was this shot. Uh, y- y- you know, because she's in pain, and I I don't know. I-, I I have no idea. Maybe because they, oh well. Plus, it's Donna opening a door, and that's Laura standing in her doorway, and Gordon Cole opens the door, and that's the same shot of Laura standing in the doorway. So there's that like connection, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, yeah, but that- that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always just look at that as sort of keeping that Laura Laura thread just ever so slightly alive, you know, because um, you're right, we did get the Laura orb in part eight, but other than that, there really hasn't been much mention of Laura in the series for a while. Like, right. we get the discovery of her diary, um, and I think that's really the first mention that we get... Uh, after she is sucked up through the Red Room in part two. So I think it's just a way of like foreshadowing the fact that, hey, Laura is still going to end up being extremely important. And you're right. Like, like Gordon is Gordon is key yeah. into this in some way. You know, it's just like, I, I just kind of look at it as like a reminder, like, hey, guess what? This, this show is still kind of about Laura. Don't like, let's like, I know it's, it's it seems like we're very far away from that right now, but um you know she is she is still the heart of the show, and we are still we are still concerned with with uh, matters pertaining to Laura. Um. So yeah, the next scene that we get in Firewalk with Me is the dinner table scene, and this to me is a really strong moment for Ray Wise here because you know Ray Wise is a very he's a very bright and charismatic actor when he wants to be but i've always been really impressed with the way that he was able to um 
dig down and really just like find his inner darkness for, for for this film in particular because this is probably i mean other than probably the maddie scene in season two this is the most dark depiction of of leland that we see here um the way that he's sort of interrogating her uh chastising her you know he's asking about this necklace if it's from a lover he's sort of um, badgering her about uh, some perceived promiscuity, which is a very like sick dynamic <laughs> um, for somebody you know who's sexually abusing his daughter. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just um, my main takeaway from this scene is just like how much of a maniac <laughs> Leland comes off here, and just how scared not just Laura but also Sarah is of him because you know Sarah clearly knows something is happening here like that's those are my big takeaways from this scene what do you guys think yeah she there's um there's such like a perversion happening where like you really get to see the abuser abusee relationship and dynamic at play here because leland is from the get-go accusing laura of being dirty and promiscuous and sort of that's sort like kind of a uh, like a telltale sign of abuse that that or or like that sort of like emotional manipulation of like you've been abused and you are now tainted and it's your fault uh, also just like a, a an observation on the more twin peaksy side of it when he goes over and grabs her hand he grabs the left the ring finger on her left hand and says this finger is dirty this is a uh which is of course the finger that he ends up placing the the letter uh, i think what is it, r mm. or t underneath um and then also that that comes up in the return with the whole spiritual mound thing and um just like a little little brief like little glimpse into um like i don't know whatever you want to call it the supernatural side of things but overall this is this is also up there in just one of those very um devastating scenes because it's ha it kind of happens so slowly and once sarah starts shrieking uh you know, you'd expect that like it, it's like it's gonna reach a fever pitch but it doesn't it just sits in this discomfort uh and then finally they sit down and there's like a brief moment of silence and leland declares he's not eating anything until lara actually gets up and washes her hands and she makes her go through with it and then she's sitting there just holding a bar of soap bawling her eyes out it is like it's just so like uncomfortable and um this is maybe one of those examples of like this is pretty pretty friggin' real like this is a a pretty uh accurate description of of um, of like just very intense emotional manipulation and like a clear abuse of uh like a power dynamic that that her father would have over her and, and it just makes you sick to see and then to see like a completely uh broken person standing in front of a mirror just watching herself deteriorate while she's supposed to be cleaning her hands like it, it is just uh it's it's horrible mm -hmm. yeah that's i can't add anything to that this is just this scene sums that this sums up the whole what this movie's all about which is it's it's uh gross and scary and um yeah, I love that. It's true. The ring finger, the ring, the, the spiritual mound, the letters under the fingernail. Like, there's just uh, connecting, 
connecting points like crazy. And like you said, the Sarah at this point, again, that's not the focus of the movie and it's never even touched on in the original show, but I think this is another element besides, uh, you know, the references in the original series of Sarah Palmer being kind of spooky in this one, kind of like how you see Leland, like, you know, okay, Bob's inside of him, but he's probably still an abusive guy. And, you know, this is this scene. You see that, Sarah bears some responsibility in this too. And it's not, it's obviously not ever, she might not know what's going on because they do show, you know, she's being drugged, right? Or it, it implies that she's being drugged. But I think that that was a thing in the return. I don't want to get into it too much, but you know, when they sat down to do the return that they probably, well, we got Sarah being kind of spooky in the original series, but also like, Hey, you know, she was there the whole time all this stuff was going yeah. down. Like, isn't, isn't she, she responsible a little bit? Is there some e- evil inside of Sarah? And I think that's where you get the, you know, the frog moth or may or may not be happening. Judy, like all the, the, the return is, is, is kind of Sarah's fire walk with me. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. In a way, like, like see, seeing the, you know, taking, seeing the, what she's responsible for and what her, her mouth evil doings or whatever, but just being complacent or not do it. Like, she obviously knows something's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a lot of hints, a lot, you see a lot of those hints in this movie, even though, you know, this is more about Leland. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I have the same read on, on what's going on with, uh, with Sarah in the return, I, I always sort of looked at her inhabitation or her link to Judy or whatever as being sort of a, um, I don't know, like a symbolic way of reckoning with the fact that she knew that something was going on right under her nose in her house and did nothing for it. Um, did nothing about it rather, but that's, that's a whole rabbit hole that we could, <laughs> we, we, we could go down. Um, but yeah, so Later that night, we get a really scary shot of Leland on the bed, sort of rocking back and forth, and um, he starts crying at one point. It's almost like he... It's like hinting at the fact that he knows that he's a piece of shit, (laughs) honestly. And, yeah, and and it's it's sort of ambiguous in this film, the degree to which... Leland is aware of what he's doing you know it's like does he it's like does he just sort of go into like a blackout state whenever he's like in full bob mode and raping Laura does he does he remember what's going on is it partly an act of his own will I think that the way that this movie muddies those waters is um one of the more compelling things about it actually because I've never been a big fan of what we saw in season two, where there's like this very clear dividing line between Leland and Bob, you know, it's like Leland was definitely possessed and that's the reason he did it. And he was completely unwilling and it's just very black and white. And I think it's just a lot stronger thematically to believe that it might've been some mixture of Bob and then also just him you know, having that darkness within him as well. And maybe Bob just sort of represents a a freedom of inhibitions for him to really embrace his inner darkness. 
Yeah, I, I get that read too. That like he, Bob is simply, um, he's just sort of servicing Leland's own id and Leland's own like dark innate desires that you know any human being may very well I don't know have, but there's a civil civility and a morality that sort of uh, makes those thoughts not even like entertainable for a second and that bob is sort of this dissolving of those uh inhibitions as you put it and so he's able to fully uh just commit to this to, to this uh just animalistic amoral uh desire or or um whatever it, it is but I, I this whole scene of him going into Lara's room and telling her telling her that you know he loves her and uh, kissing her on the head and being very gentle. And, and it, to me, uh, it reads as another layer of abuse and an obfuscation yeah. of what he is. And maybe he does have guilt and realizes it, um, but he wields that guilt at Laura in a way that confuses her further and causes her to look up at the angel in the, in the painting and say, is mm. it true? Like, it confuses her even more. And, and it actually, it gives her a bit of hope that ends up completely uh, blowing up on her in a huge way later on when, when she has the realization. So um, I, I definitely think that this depiction of Leland as a um, um, both a willing and unwilling participant in, in all of the events is certainly, it, it just, it rings truer than, like you're saying, the black and white idea of like, you know, uh, Leland, oh, wow, that's right, I was possessed and, and raped and killed my daughter, that's right. It's like, no, he, not only that, but he's apparently been dealing with Bob since he himself was a kid. So for him, I don't think that the line is clear. I, I wouldn't believe that that character has, like, a peace of mind outside of his possession where he's just totally blacks out and to him everything is fine and dandy Is his daughter is... You know, homecoming queen, and everything is is fine. He has a nice job with the horns. Uh, now, I really get the sense that he is uh, probably as uh, tortured and traumatized and fractured by this whole thing, and that has um, that has like led to this character being completely and utterly uh just like a ball of all of these things that we're talking about with not a lot of like logic or reason behind any of it it's just this um if to him the his own i guess probably motivations are completely lost and muddied amongst this this possession or this other side of himself that he's he must have had like a moment of realization about at some point during his life mm. so yeah, uh, perfect explanation. And the only thing I would add is that um, everything you just said and the ambiguous nature and all of that is absolutely true of Leland in here. And you can make all the same arguments about Sarah in the return, mm -hmm. basically. I think yep. so. There's no clear. There's no clear through line to what's going on with Sarah. Is Bob the evil that men do and inhabited Leland and normally a good guy? But Or is this abuse? Like, if Bob came into him when he was a young kid, that also implies that he was abused as a young kid sure. and that this abuse thing is a, is a cycle and 
all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. Yeah, and the, and and this whole thing about him coming into her room and uh, you know telling her he loves her and and all this sort of thing very apologetically. It's just like like you alluded to, Dylan. It's just it's a classic abused abuser dynamic here. It's like, oh well, he hits me, but I know he loves me. That type of thing, right? It's like very often you see victims of domestic abuse. Right. It's like, um like immediately after there's this moment of of like intense guilt and self-flagellation it's like oh i'm such a piece of shit i'll never do it again etc cetera, etc cetera. this is all just like a very very classic recreation of that dynamic so yeah so later that night laura there's a scene where she's sort of looking at this painting of the angels a little bit of foreshadowing here and uh I believe what happens is that she actually left the framed photo underneath the bushes when she ran out of the house and it looks like she goes back and she gets it and she puts it on her wall and when she falls asleep she ends up in the photo and this begins a really surreal and fascinating scene where Mrs. Chalfont is there and sort of waving Laura through this painting space and this space is one that is going to be referenced later in the return when Mr. C goes through the Dutchman's and it has the exact same wallpaper, like that black floral style that we're going to see. And we also get some more Red Room stuff here. Um, you know, the the man from another place slash the arm. He does his whole I am the arm and I sound like this thing. <laughs> uh, classic. And also him taking the owl cave ring and holding it up to the camera, which is uh, something I, I have as a t-shirt, which I, I really like. Um, yeah. And we get Cooper, of course, telling Laura, don't take the ring. And uh, I guess I'll refer to the resident ring scholar, Jeremiah, uh, <laughs> as to what, as to what Cooper means when he tells Laura, "Don't take the ring." What do you think? What do you think Cooper means by that exactly? Well, this is like a classic Twin Peaks thing that can be interpreted a, a hundred different ways. Um, sure. I actually, so, but my my first video was about the ring specifically, and I I kind of, you know, at least me growing up, the first twenty years of being a fan, the amongst other fans that I talked to anyway, was the, basically the idea that's like, well, the ring is obviously bad, bad. That's like what, you know, well, the ring is like, you know, maybe it forces Bob to kill her or whatever. Like the ring obviously comes from this, the red room. So Cooper, uh, you know, he's telling her not to take it because he thinks it's bad. And then like, I just, never really thought about it. And then, you know, a few years back, it was like the, um, I think he doesn't know what he's doing. So in the missing pieces, like he, he's like, there's some extra footage of him in here in the red room. And he's like, you know, where am I? When can I leave? What's going on? And then the arm, you know, picks up the ring and point. And then he's like, Oh, don't take the ring, Laura, don't take the ring. And I mean, I guess if she took the ring, um, she ends up with the ring anyway at the end of the show. 
So basically, I think I think that the Chalfont's giving her the picture, and uh, the arm trying to give her the ring in the dream, and then Mike ending up giving her the tossing the ring in the train car at the end. You know, they're trying to get her to take it because that's the deal with Bob. So she takes the ring and puts the ring on. Then Bob can't possess her. He has to kill her, basically, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much all I got. I think that Cooper, I mean, well, you could also take the angle like, well, Cooper does know what the ring is. And it's he knows that if she puts it on that she's going going to die. So he's he's his reaction is pure and he's like, hey, oh, my God, you know, don't take the ring or you're, you're going to be killed. But then you get into the whole like, well, this is kind of like a destiny thing, too. And like Laura decides to die like this is all kind of her choice and kind of meant to be. And like if if she doesn't take the ring, Cooper, then Bob goes into her. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so like, does he mm-hmm. not see that or what? So I, the simplest way I think is just he's he doesn't know where he's at or what he's doing or how long he's going to be stuck in there. And he sees Laura Palmer and the, the arms trying to give her the ring. And he's like, yeah, don't take that. That's bad. Like, that's just his instinct talking mm-hmm. to me because yeah, it's, like- it's not I mean, he's he's not wrong. <laughs> you know, he's not wrong. Like, it is bad. Uh uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's just how would how would you react in a story in a story like that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you know, you just right. It's like it's like he sees the ring as it's like the ring is of the Black Lodge, therefore it is bad in Cooper's mind, and he doesn't he doesn't want Laura to take it because for that reason is what you're saying basically. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that tracks to me. I don't know. I was I was just um, this whole business with the ring and what it means for Laura to put on the ring versus letting Bob possess her and how all these various forces feel about that. Cooper and uh, Mike and the arm and all that has always been really interesting to me. Um. So, yeah, we get Laura. She sort of wakes up, quote unquote, <laughs> from this. Uh, not really. We're in sort of a dream within a dream situation here, and she's holding her left arm. Uh, which I don't know. Maybe you could say that it's gone numb, similar to how the waitress described what happened to Teresa Banks earlier in the film. And wouldn't you know it, Annie Blackburn is in her bed, and she tells Laura, "My name is Annie. I've been with Dale and Laura." Uh, the good Dale is in the lodge and he can't leave right in your diary. And this is something that is going to get referenced again later in the return with uh, the missing diary pages that Hawk finds and all that. Uh, And then Laura turns over and sees that Annie has disappeared and that the ring is now in her hand. And curiously enough, this is the moment at which Laura starts to really freak out. All the uh, all the stuff before that she seemed to take in stride, but Annie no longer being there and the ring being literally in her possession seems to really freak her out for some reason. Um, yeah, and then we get some interesting stuff. So Laura, she she's heading out the door and she turns around and she sees sort of a pseudo mirror image of herself in the photo opening 
opening the door in that black floral wallpaper room here. This, um, you know, we, we just watched Inland Empire and it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, the scene in there where Laura Dern is like watching herself on the movie screen <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know, just this idea that Lynch likes of, you know, blurring the lines between fiction and reality. This is like one of the first major instances that I, I can I can think of there. I'm sure there's probably other examples too, but this is like uh, this is like one of the first major instances of that that I can think of. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good connection. I didn't even mm-hmm. think of that. Yeah, totally. Uh, th- this whole sequence is like it's just like it's in the middle of of the the film, and it's it's very clearly like a dream sequence. But in a film like this, that doesn't like you know stand yeah. out all that much but i i i feel like this is one of the more surreal uh in more like inland empire-esque scenes where um it's not necessarily a given that any of this is happening chronologically or it's sort of following this sort of dream logic but i mean this whole thing you have to imagine is um you know this whole thing is a result of uh mrs tremont giving laura the the framed photo which we can i guess posit that this whole thing was just designed to to give her the ring to like jeremiah like you said uphold the end of the uh you know bob's end of the bargain and then if you look at what happens once uh laura does take the ring and puts it on and is killed is that uh leland slash bob voluntarily it seems or maybe he's bound by some sort of contract or something he goes to glastonbury grove and sort of prostrates himself in front of uh mike in the arm in this so it's like it clearly seems that everything that those those entities are doing is designed to get bob back into uh the the waiting room and to uphold his end of the deal and um uh all of this whole like uh, this like little adventure that Lara goes on, it, you can almost see it as like she's wearing black the whole time, um, and she sees this very she sees the image of herself in different looking, wearing this black gown, uh, and then gets this ring, which we know as the viewers is sort of symbolic of of her death or maybe her escape from from this abuse cycle, um, because we do know that she has a tendency towards abuse herself, which we see um just in her sort of sociopathic behavior but um yeah i think other than that you guys have pretty much said it all no that's perfect perfectly perfectly said i agree with all of that yep so then laura she wakes up for real and she (laughs) takes the the photo off the wall and she flips it upside down like hmm that was a weird dream i don't think i i don't think i liked that very much I think I'm just going to not think about this photo for a little while here. And then we get just a brief scene here. Our second and I believe last uh, Shelly sighting where Leo is sort of screaming at her. I don't know. He's like something about cleaning the floor and he like grabs her and he slaps her on the back of the head. And it's just like another domestic abuse thing thrown in there for good measure, I guess. And Leo receives a call from Bobby talking about 
like how the football is gone. I don't know. All this sort of gets twisted in my mind a little bit. This whole like drug plot. Um, but ultimately it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also like ultimately like the important thing about it is that, uh, this is what leads Bobby to, um, go up into the woods with Laura to meet, uh, the guy who I now know thanks to Jeremiah is the dude from, from, uh, Deer Meadow, uh, and, uh, you know, kill that guy and everything like that. Uh, th- that's, you know, the details, escape me and i don't think are particularly important um so let's see from here oh yeah so laura goes to the roadhouse and when she's here we get uh a pretty cool log lady scene where the log lady sort of meets her and i think she Mm -hmm. she like puts her hand to laura's head right it's like she puts her hand to her forehead is that what happens am i remembering that correctly exactly yeah like she's checking her right yeah yeah and um she says to her the tender bows of innocence burn first and the wind rises then all goodness is in jeopardy um sort of like a uh this reminds me of it reminds me honestly more of the log lady stuff from the return than it does from the stuff in the original show it's just a little bit more cryptic uh do you guys agree yeah, totally. Definitely. It's, she speaks in poetry and, and riddles. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, more akin to her, her phone calls with Hawk. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, in the original show, I think, especially in the pilot, like, I think she was just going to be kind of a quirky character, and I think people responded to it. So basically, from, from the pilot moving forward, she becomes more and more like a, you know, a mystic or a seer or a town you know, like, like, uh, who who knows what, who knows? Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, there, after the first season, then we got the secret history or secret diary novel by Jennifer Lynch and log ladies in that. And she definitely starts to take on more of a, you know, I guess, you know, spiritual side or whatever. And then, you know, season two, there's those moments with major Briggs and you realize that, that Margaret had been abducted as well. And, you know, and, and so you, she's the, the more the show goes on, you see that she's kind of in tune with a lot more. And yeah, and then definitely by the time this movie rolls around and you had the book and two seasons of the show, definitely more cryptic and uh, uh, iconic. And then I think, yeah, the secret history book and the return and all that 25 years later, everything. Yeah, very poetic and has to do with time and space and and the meaning of life and what this is all about. And you know what I mean? Right. So, uh, but yeah, I love it. I love this scene. It's great. There's a, it's a great scene in the missing pieces. It's not, I don't think she speaks, but there's a, the night that more Laura dies, there's a cut of log lady in her house, like holding her log and she's all scared. You guys recall that? I think it's just like a a single shot. Um, it's very brief. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah, I love the log lady. Uh, that's all I got. <laughs> Laura is here watching Julie Cruz sing questions in a world of blue, beautiful song. There's a really gorgeous blue light that's draping Julie Cruz as she's performing this at the roadhouse. Laura is watching. She's very emotional. This is like, a thing with Lynch, this idea of having a really emotional 
or transportive experience while watching a live music performance we like we see it again and again it's like Mm -hmm. there's frank booth watching dorothy in blue velvet there's betty and rita Mm -hmm. at the club silencio there's of course cooper watching julie cruz uh in the original run just characters having this moment of self-reflection or transformation while watching a live performance it's a it's an interesting motif throughout lynch's work i think you forgot a big one nick you forgotten uh renee bawling <laughs> her eyes out to james hurley in the road oh yes how could you how could you forget yes that? of course i apologize to i apologize <laughs> to renee and more importantly to the powerful musical stylings of james hurley um, yeah you better <laughs> um so yeah i i just i really i like that i like that a lot and thinking about it like those are some of my favorite scenes in the entire lynch filmography like betty and rita at the club silencio is like probably like top five for me in terms of lynch scenes i would say Um, oh yeah he just really he tends to just stage all this stuff really beautifully and powerfully um so yeah, Laura is here and she's like meeting with some some potential Johns, I guess you could say, some men to men to sleep with for money. And Donna follows her here, and I guess we should say I think I might have forgot to mention there was like a brief scene here uh before this where Laura sort of tells Donna not to not to follow her and not to pay any mind as to what she's doing. And this is, as we discussed last episode, sort of Laura's way of, of trying to protect Donna from the darkness that she herself has, has gone into. And um, there's a scene here where Donna is really just following Laura's lead and kissing this guy and sort of showing that she can go toe-to-toe with whatever Laura's doing and, like, Oh, like I'm a, you know, I'm a dangerous, sophisticated woman, just like Laura Palmer, and, uh, you know, and uh, which is all a ruse, of course. And uh, Laura at first isn't happy about it, but then she sort of like takes this defiant attitude towards, it. like, okay, Donna, like you really want to do this, huh? Well, then let's do it. And then they go to the pink room, which. Just another amazing scene. God, I love this. I love this so much. It's so nightmarish. I, I first of all, this song that plays here is just an absolute banger. I love this song. I could listen to this song on a loop, like forever. It's so good. It's so sick. Yeah, yeah. It rules. Totally, totally yeah, rules. And just yeah, freaking awesome song right here. And uh, just combined with, like, the strobe lights and, like, the stripping and just the red hue over everything like that. It is just such a vibe, <laughs> as, as the kids would say. It's, it's a vibe. It's a mood. And, um, yeah, very strange dialogue here between Laura and Donna and Jacques and all them. It's like, we get Jacques saying, I am the great Wendt. <laughs> and Laura saying, I am the muffin, which of course 
um, is a reference to another scene that was in it was in the the missing pieces right where she talks about you yeah. know, being the muffin and all that yeah her and Donna uh, combo yeah so this is when this is really when it it it's we get an idea of just how deep Laura is into this whole dark underbelly of of Twin Peaks here when she is dancing with this man who sort of starts disrobing her and um you know it's it's like we don't really have an idea of just how like of just how deep Laura is in this world until we we watch this happen right here I think Donna is like a little bit of an audience surrogate here where she just sort of looks on shocked and realizes like oh no Laura is in a completely different world from me right now like she is um like she is in with stuff far darker than that of a uh, a typical high school girl you know yeah it makes me think of the conversation between Cooper and uh, Harry Truman when Cooper tells Truman that they had that Laura had a uh, a drug habit and that she was involved in prostitution and uh, Harry says something like you that can't be true you didn't know Laura Palmer so like from the outside perspective like all like all these things hinted at in the original run it's like there like there's almost like an air of like you can't like that it can't be true like it's un it's completely unbelievable but then you you witness it firsthand here and like you said donna is sort of the surrogate for that where um i find it interesting too that before she walks over to the table um it, she it looks like she's wiping some tears away from her eyes so like even though she seems to be like playing ball with this whole thing she's at the same time recognizes that there's um like you said a complete and utter like unrecognizable darkness to what Lara is is up to um yet still voluntarily uh donna involves herself in it which is very interesting mm -hmm. yeah um even with without any kind of context of the the diary or any of the background information that people might have had you know the first time you see this like yeah definitely this is the scene that's totally clear that you know, uh, you know, this reminds me of the conversation they had on the couch, you know, falling through space and uh, bursting into flames, you know, because everything's red, you know, and there's the holes in the ceiling and the lights coming down through the holes. And then there's the strobe lights. And, um, you know, this is Donna and Laura at the, you know, kind of towards the, you know, further along in the movie and their situations totally changed, obviously. And. Uh, you know, there's something I never noticed before, but Donna, they actually drug her beer. I, I always kind of forget that. Like, there's a little quick shot. Yep. Um, but yeah, the music, the Donna's realization of how far gone Laura is, and then Laura's flip realization that she doesn't want Donna to be have any part in this. Um, this is like one of the most memorable Lynch scenes of all time. No question. Uh, you guys want to know something really weird. Uh, so again, this was the first, first, mm. first thing that I saw when I was 14 or whatever was this movie as far as twin peaks. And so I'm totally out of context. Totally. Don't know what's going on. Don't know. Jeffries don't know Cooper, just trying to put it all together. So the, I don't know if it's the first run, one of the runs of the firewalk with me home video release, 
either for rental or I believe. Uh, but this scene had no subtitles. So when yeah. when I when I, I first that, yeah. saw this scene, it was just insanely loud, and I kept turning it up, <laughs> turning it up to hear what. Well, they're obviously saying stuff, so I tried to like, what are they saying? So anyway, it was bizarre. It was the, one of the most bizarre mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> movie viewings of all uh, I've ever had. Yeah, and then you watch the one with the subtitles, and it's like, "I am the great went. I am the muffin. I'm as blank as a fart." Just like oh, maybe <laughs> maybe I wasn't missing like valuable information here. Yeah, there is there is a version floating out there that doesn't have subtitles, uh, not just in this scene but also in the the red room stuff as well. Uh, so oh, oh like, wow, <laughs> yeah and yeah and like you know pretty much always the red room stuff has subtitles to help people out with the backwards speaking and stuff, but. Um, I have seen right. a version like <laughs> like you're discussing that doesn't have the subtitles here or in the red room, um, which is a, a challenging challenging experience, I'm sure. Um, I think that probably the only like significant dialogue that happens here from a plot perspective is this bit that Jacques says where he he tells that where he tells Ronette and Laura that. Teresa had called him asking what Laura and Ronette's fathers look like. Um, and that apparently she was sort of planning on blackmailing Leland. Um, which is an interesting recall. Mm. It, I guess, might give us some um, additional motivation for Leland killing Teresa Banks. Yeah, that's. A, I think that's exactly what this is. Because other than that, there's no other like practical reason that he murders her um i don't, I don't know it, 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 and i also am not certain like what exactly was there a similar deal in place between like with like bob and Teresa banks like there is with like bob and laura um how did she get the ring um and and why did was she killed i don't know this is at least a a sound motivation from leland's perspective mm-hmm yeah, like Leland, the actual human being, Leland, not just like Bob Leland. Yes, it's like exactly. more of this muddying of the waters. Yeah, and it totally just it keeps, um, continues to muddy the waters as to how much of Leland is Bob, et cetera, et cetera. So if if all of that's true, then that means that Leland acted totally alone and this is totally a reaction of the blackmail and all that blackmail stuff is fleshed out more in the missing pieces uh by the way there's yeah there's an extra yeah. f- mm-hmm. like five minutes of the the motel scene and and the you know but the, it gets the job done through and, the ads and, and whatnot yeah. yeah yeah so you know so if all that's true then leland killed Teresa banks out of the sake of protecting leland you know, but then you get the impression that, that right. the other lodge beings are mad because they haven't got the Garmin Bozia right. But then Teresa Bank, Teresa right. Banks wore the ring according to the autopsy. You know, she had a ring. She had a ring mm-hmm. on in her hand. So it's like, when did she have the ring? If if she was wearing the ring and Leland killed her and Bob killed her and she had the ring on just like Laura, then wouldn't that have fed the the lodge beings and why would they be all pissed off at him about 
Well, you need to kill Laura. You need to kill Laura because you owe us, you owe us cream corn. And it's like, well, if, mm-hmm. if Teresa Banks had mm-hmm. the ring and he killed her, even if it was out of personal reasons, then wouldn't her spirit got like, wouldn't have he given them? So I don't know. Who knows? That's where this all. <laughs> this is where for me, yeah, uh, maybe there's all just something. Just be, maybe there's just something. A, yeah. Sure. Maybe there's just something specifically about Laura that they want. You know what I mean? It's like, well, right. Which feed that can that feeds into the the you know can get into the return stuff too. But you know, obviously that wasn't in mind at the time. I mean, at the time it's like yeah. I'm basically yeah. just thinking thinking too much about it. But um, yeah, the so you know the she sees Leland coming out of the house. That's her first kind of clue. And then this is kind of like her second clue. Like, wait a minute, why would you be asking about my dad? And she ended up dead. And so obviously that when she comes out screaming and she, uh, the, the diary pages and then Leland walks out, I mean, that's a pretty freaking obvious clue. But uh, mm-hmm. but but basically she's still she's still not 100 percent. But the way I view this movie, she's not 100 percent till she sees him in bed. Yeah. Right, and yeah, then right, there's exactly. the, like the she, scream, right? What? Yeah, exactly. But this, like she so thinks this, she knows, but there's there's probably just like that that like one percent kernel of her that is in denial about the fact that her father is the one that's molesting her. So yes, yes, and then this pink room scene is the uh, the 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 next clue, which again was totally lost on me because yeah. I couldn't hear it, and even with the subtitles, it's <laughs> just kind of like what? What about the father and blackmail? That's weird. Because mm-hmm. without the missing piece, without yeah, the missing don't for, pieces, don't forget about. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Just without the missing pieces, kind of fleshing this out. Like I never picked up on the Teresa might be a. Do- I, I I don't know for some reason that never stuck out in my mind till the missing pieces and everything. Kind of was like, oh, okay, I got you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so Donna is getting into. It's getting into stuff too, and Laura sees Donna drunk and topless on a table, and there's some dude draped over her, and Laura snaps, sort of snaps into action immediately, and runs over to help Donna and cover her up and like drag her out of there. And the next morning, Donna doesn't seem to have much memory of what happened. At the very least, she doesn't remember how she got home. We don't really know how much of the night Donna remembers, but um, yeah, she doesn't really seem to remember Laura springing into action and helping her and all that. It's at this moment that Leland walks in and we get a small flashback of the motel material that we were alluding to uh, with Mm. Laura and Ronette and all that sort of stuff. It's a very brief, brief flashback. And that scene leads... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. That's uh, just one real quick. That's just like another... Because uh, that he has that same flashback later, where he's like, you know, he's going to meet Teresa, and then he sees Laura and Ronette. That's Leland. Like that's not Bob. Like yeah. So Leland understands that his daughter is involved in prostitution, and his daughter is in the same ring as this woman that he this this prostitute that he's seeing. So just another incriminating bit for Leland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
This is 100% Leland right here. So that leads into an absolutely amazing scene here of Mike rolling up and confronting Leland at Laura at this intersection, which is the same intersection that Richard runs over the kid in The Return, interestingly enough. Yep. And god damn i just love how insane this scene is here mike rolls up he's he's wearing the owl cave ring as a pinky ring and he's waving it at lauren leland and he has he screams this dialogue that again is very difficult to make out because we are just in the midst of this absolute insane cacophony of like engines revving <laughs> and dogs barking there's like a really weird couple shots just to a dog <laughs> and like Leland and Laura are both like sh- and Mike are all just like shouting at the top of their lungs and it's just so fucking insane I love it and Mike is saying uh, okay I have the quote here he says you stole the corn I had it canned over the store and miss the look on her face when it was opened. There was a stillness, like the formica tabletop. The thread will be torn, Mr. Palmer. The thread will be torn. And then he tells Laura, it's him. It's your father. And, um, boy, yeah, I just, aside from all the obvious, you know, implications of, you know, this deal, quote unquote, that, uh, Mike and the other lodge entities have with Leland and Bob and the canned corn and, and all that. I just love the absolutely chaotic energy of this scene here. <laughs> it's it's really remarkable. Just the way that it's edited together and uh, the just the completely, um, just the enormous racket of this scene. I really enjoy the yeah the ambition of david lynch to really take volume to an uncomfortable level as an artistic choice is is among my favorites of his just because it it puts you on edge in a way that's like you know it's like hearing a baby cry kind of like springs you into action just like um like uh innately like it triggers something in your brain like very loud cacophony does something to you psychologically and changes how you view a certain scene or how you uh, interpret it. So his use of just like the incredible like hum of machinery and uh, just like the screeching of the tires and the screaming of the engine. I think Laura even mentions, uh, is like, do you smell that? It smells like, like your engine's on fire, kind of like a scorched engine oil yes. type yeah. reference. Um but it, it it really it's it's the his his willingness to like go beyond what might be comfortable for the viewer and intentionally put in like just these this just like it, like I I've watched this movie like late at night and this scene comes on and I gotta like turn the volume down like like ten or fifteen notches just to not wake up all my neighbors because it just like goes from you know this quiet scene of them sitting uh sitting in a living room having a little chat to all of a sudden there's just friggin' just machinery and screaming and all kinds of crazy shit so but it's a real testament to 
um, you know, Lynch's willingness to place the viewer outside of their comfort zone and um, kind of like assault your senses as an attempt to uh, probe you and, and prime you for like the artistic purpose of a scene like this. Yeah, agreed. It's one of my favorite scenes of all time, probably. Uh, it's completely bananas, like you said. And um, yeah, it's the same. So you got the return. You got another road rage incident at this intersection. Um, you know, the this is where. It, so it just a kind of, again, kind of absurd. Like the guy is literally screaming like, it's your father. <laughs> But like, <laughs> yeah. but like, right. we don't know it yet. I mean, we know it, I guess, but like the noise and the calamity and all that. And, um, so Laura still doesn't get it. Right. So this is like another clue and it's like obvious. And I think that's just another kind of subtle comment maybe on the abuse in the family situation, like sign the the there'd be certain signs that it's like literally screaming in your face that like something's wrong but people still don't maybe not react to it right i don't know i don't know who knows but uh yeah exactly but i i, I love this scene right. and um and mike is great and yeah and you read the subtitles and so yeah i saw this movie like 10 times and then it was like when i got a version that had subtitles like oh shit this is this is all about cream corn they're fighting over freaking cream corn. okay i get like i it's fu- it's funny it's like when you watch this movie with subtitles like so much more things click so it's like this movie makes no sense but watch it with subtitles and watch the hour and a half of extra footage and then maybe <laughs> maybe you'll like start to figure it out <laughs> what the hell's going on oh yeah yeah and i'll just say also like this is definitely my favorite al strobel moment probably in the history of twin peaks like he is just absolutely unhinged here. Like the way that he is just screaming and waving his pinky around. It's like, it's like, whoa. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. This is like, the, this is like Mike's Mike's shining moment in my opinion. Oh yeah. No question. I just, uh, you know, he gets, uh, it's unfortunate because it seems like in the original show, he gets the good, you know, he gets to say fire walk with me poem and he gets, uh, he gets some, it seems like his, his moments are more, I don't know, like relevant to the plot or whatever, where this one is just kind of, but it's definitely like my, my favorite Mike moment. (laughs) You're just like, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Get him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very peripheral, um, and apparently all of the stuff with him throwing the ring into the train car was sort of an afterthought. Um, yeah, from what I, from what I've read, like all that stuff was shot like supposedly way after um, all that train car stuff was was shot. Right? Have you have you uh, have you heard that as well? Yeah, I heard that. I heard that too. Uh... So I don't know if it's just a shot of the ring hitting the floor or if it's all of it with her hand and you actually see her putting it on. You know what I mean? So it's like it's one thing if it's right. like, well, we need to make this to make sense. So we got to have him 
do the ring thing. So let's let's go back and shoot some additional. But it, <laughs> but it's another thing if it's like ah uh, yes, well, it, it all makes sense now that they added that. Now it's right. totally crystal clear. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you know, you never. I, I I don't know. I don't know if it was like well, we have to we have to. She's got to put the ring on at the end for this to make sense, and they shot all of that. Or if it's just like, oh shit, we don't have any shot of the ring like entering the train car, so maybe we need to go back and do that one shot. So I, I don't know. I, I haven't. I haven't actually. Mm-hmm. But I did hear that that they that that was added later. Right. Hm. Yep. Yeah. So then we get a flashback basically what we were alluding to before of Leland with Teresa Banks, they're in bed together. And he says, you know, he basically says that he'd be willing to party with the girls that she told him about unaware that one of those girls is his daughter. And there's a pretty creepy and sinister moment here where he covers her eyes with his hands and asks her, who he is and he says and she says i don't know and he's like that's right which is just mm-hmm. oh leland again that seems to be leland yeah and, and not bob yeah mm-hmm. yeah just um sleeping with teenage girls that's what leland's all about um so yeah and we we get we skip ahead a little bit and he sees Ronette and Laura through an open door and he freaks out and he pays Teresa and he's like, Oh yeah, I I chickened out. And then he leaves. And as he's leaving, we see the boy in the mask jumping behind him. Uh, Yeah. I don't don't really know what to make of that. Yeah. I think that's just, he's, I don't know, like, I think it may be just showing the connection between Bob slash Leland and that he's being followed by these entities that are all just sort of keeping tabs on him and mm-hmm. uh, making sure he upholds his end of the bargain. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So then um, we get this scene of Laura accompanying Bobby to the woods where they are going to score some cocaine from this Deer Meadow policeman. And he shows up with the cocaine and he pulls a gun out and tries to kill them. Bobby pulls out a gun first and shoots him several times, including one last shot in the head so that we know he's dead. And Laura is apparently so just like high and drunk out of her mind that she doesn't really know how to process this information and just starts cracking up. And Bobby is very disturbed by this. He's like, it's not, you know, it's not fucking funny. He's flipping out. Uh, Cause now he has a dead body on his hands. And um, this is like, this is like, we're just, I know it's like, it seems like an obvious point. We are, we are just, um, just spiraling ever further down the rabbit hole with Laura. Like she seems almost at this point, like she's disconnecting from reality. Like she's not even engaging with, with mm-hmm. what's in front of her in a meaningful way and is instead just choosing to completely dissociate with, with drugs. And she's going to be similarly unhinged later uh, in a little bit with James when she goes out and meets him in the woods as well. 
Yeah, dissociates the word I would use. She's completely um, detached from from any semblance of meaning of, of what's happening. Like, you know, someone just got murdered in front of her and she... Uh, not only does she not care, she she's kind of making a joke out of it and trolling Bobby and telling him that he shot Mike. And she, she knows that this is going to piss him off. And every time she says it, she kind of laughs through it. It's this... Uh, like you said, this unraveling of her and this this downward spiral that she you know she could see someone murdered right in front of her and, and it it won't wake her up from this. She's so far gone. Yeah. So Bobby kills a guy, which uh, is pretty crazy <laughs> because now we have the knowledge that the Bobby that we see throughout the original run and in the return is somebody who has shot a man to death, which, uh feels like it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes uh but it feels like an important part of bobby's character that he did in fact kill a guy on a drug deal gone wrong which is like i don't know kind of mind-blowing and like i mentioned in our episode about part 17 of the return like there's that whole scene in black and white where uh laura is talking to james and they chose to to leave that part in where she mentions like Bobby killed a guy and James is just like, what? And I, I always mm-hmm. just, um, I just, I fixate on that a little bit. Cause it's like, th- it's like the show sort of reminding us that there is this, there's this other layer to Bobby that, you know, even though he's, he's now this allegedly reformed upstanding young policeman, he does have this, this dark past. Uh, I always just, um, yeah, I always just thought it was interesting that they that they chose to keep that piece of information in at such a pivotal moment in the season. Yeah, and interestingly enough, he he killed uh, a sheriff's deputy, and that's exactly right. what he becomes. He becomes mm-hmm. a sheriff's deputy uh, who used to deal drugs, just like the sheriff's deputy who did deal drugs. So it's just like an interesting little parallel, and it could maybe provide some insight into his uh experience with the 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 sick girl and the screaming woman or was that some sort of i don't know just if that was a dream sequence was it maybe brought upon by this underlying guilt that he must have uh from from that like his own traumatic experience of uh shooting and killing someone who he by all accounts did not intend to shoot and kill up until guns were drawn like i don't think he went into that moment like prepared to murder anyone and it's sort of interesting that we explore so many other characters traumas very in depth and then something like that which would definitely imprint heavily on a young man um we maybe we we don't overtly see it really referenced that much yeah i i agree um i think that's about all i can say about that I mean, that's, it's, it's, it, it is an interesting choice. And I mean, I thought when I saw Bobby in the return as a deputy, like, I really thought they were going to re- revisit that. And then it was like, okay, well, they're not going to revisit that. And then, of course, in the end of the return, they go back in time and they show that clip one more time, like, oh, Bobby killed a guy. It's like, yeah, it's just one of those things, like, he's got a dark secret too, like everybody else, apparently. So, um, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's super interesting. And it's, a, and by the way, the account of him killing somebody in the secret diary novel is different 
So he, yes. Bobby did kill somebody, but it's, and it is during a drug deal, but it's not this Cliff Howard guy. And it's, uh, this, how that all goes down is different. But at mm-hmm. the end, but at the end yeah, of the there's, there's, uh, there's, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, just at the end of the day, all anybody really needs to retain is that, you know, Bobby in a drug deal back when he was a teenager, someone ended up getting shot and it was his fault. So we, we, Flash forward to the next day and James shows up at the Palmer house and she goes out to meet him and it looks like just based on her general appearance, like she's been up all night doing cocaine and possibly crying a lot. And Leland is sort of standing ominously in the threshold there of the door and watching them and Laura sort of eye like makes eyes to the side as if like hey i have to go back inside and the reason is because my fucking psychotic dad doesn't want me out here talking to boys (laughs) you know yeah Mm -hmm. um so we go back with laura inside the house she's just doing coke more coke 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 by her bedside very casually and um yeah, this is the whole start of the quote-unquote ritual that we alluded to before where Leland gives Sarah the milk and makes sure that she drinks the whole thing, which is very creepy. Like, she drinks it and she gets all the way there, but then he just sort of, like, stands over her until she completely drinks the whole glass. The ceiling fan turns on and... Sarah sees the white horse in her room and passes out. And then we get probably the most upsetting scene of the movie. Uh, In fact, I would say definitely the most upsetting scene in the movie. Where Bob enters through the window. There's a weird, mysterious like strobe light going on as lynches want to do some sort of flashing it almost looks like lightning or something but like extremely rapid and we hear the sound of the ceiling fan otherwise it's completely silent and bob <clears throat> sorry bob slinks in through the window and makes his way onto Laura's bed and he's like sort of just like running his face all over her body and you know anytime I watch this I always just think about what it must have been like for Frank Silva to play this character I don't I don't think that that gets talked about Mm -hmm. a whole lot but I can imagine that this must have been a very (laughs) I like I I struggle to use the word brave when it comes to, to actors but like the like when people see Frank Silva's face now, they think rape. <laughs> like his 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 face right. is synonymous with scenes like this. And I just you know, and Frank Silva was by all accounts like a very kind man and as we all know he was like a set dresser for the show that ended up becoming a a big part of the mythology through some pretty obscure means. But I just wanna give uh just a word of uh, appreciation and uh, understanding to the late Frank Silva for 
taking on this role and being as terrifying as Lynch obviously wanted him to be. Yeah, it, it is kind of, it's a thought to have of like, you know, what if you went to work one day uh, and your boss was just like, hey, you know what you'd be great for in this current outfit that you're wearing and the way your hair is like, you would be a great serial rapist in this movie. And <laughs> just to go along with that and wear that same outfit every time. And um, yeah, kind of an interesting little uh, just I wonder what that conversation was like. I'm sure it wasn't that. I'm sure it was more like, hey, I need you to stand here and behind this couch and kind of look look a certain way. And it snowballed into the character of Bob. But, um, yeah, like that, uh, uh, sensibly, like that getup was just what he was wearing to work that day. And uh, that just sort of became him, that like weird Canadian tuxedo thing that he's wearing. And, uh, yeah, just, just like a... Anytime an actor portrays like a truly horrific person, um, I yeah, kudos for for being able to do that while not being that. Uh, it it blows my mind as someone who just really has no idea about acting or what goes into it or, or what it must be like. But um, yeah, those actors like Frank Silva, who who by all accounts are great people, who who have this way of portraying. Uh, a real, a real darkness and a real evil. It's, it's kind of mesmerizing. Yeah, agreed, hundred percent. He was great and iconic, and yeah, <laughs> the story how all that went down is just hilarious. But uh, yeah, apparently he was a super, super nice guy, and you know, I'm not saying that this stuff was easy, but I mean, you know, Cheryl Lee like pretty much goes through hell this whole movie. Like, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was awful. I mean, that's kind of the thing. Everyone's like, yeah, it was awful, but David's really good at making everyone comfortable. And it's, you know, so it's, you know, it's not that this stuff is easy, but I, I guess he makes it, he's a good director and, and likes, uh, makes it as easy as he can, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that it wasn't like, you know, Frank Silver, Frank Silva wasn't made to feel like a rapist on set or anything like that. Um, but, you know, like I said, just to just to have your face forever associated with this, especially when it's like your one role that you ever played. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of a <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a raw deal, but regardless, yeah, this scene is um completely horrifying. Cheryl Lee doing some real work here. Bob's face flashes to Leland and that's the moment that she, you know, accepts once and for all that Bob is in fact her father. They're one and the same. Yeah. In her in her mind. And the scream. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the scream. This the scream which actually it doubles. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but she screams and then there is this this doubling of that which i always found really fascinating and almost read it as like this is her this is her actual fracture point this is where uh you know the lara that is uh the lara that that can do good and the lara that can do evil uh really gets uh just broken or her personality splits in that in that way that uh trauma victims tend to do um just just really uh just it's just a real 
just the sound of it, it, it gets to you. It gets to me. It, it really does every time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then this is the, you know, and then after this, yeah, exactly. This is the moment that she accepts everything and, and sees things for how they are. And then from this moment out is kind of like the third act, sort of. Uh, from here, this is the turning point where she starts, uh, however you want to look at it, accepting her fate or realizing how this is going to end or you know Mm -hmm. that there's really no way out of the situation i think is is what she realizes it's like she's trapped in this house with with this maniac who's abusing her and there's just no light at the end of the tunnel for her really i think i think she i think she gets that yeah absolutely yeah and you could maybe make Um, the case that she she knows that it's either continue like this or or die, and, and that she's sort of grappling with with that concept, uh, and is has completely, like you said, just give. There's no hope. All hope is lost, and now it's just this rock in this hard place, and she's dealing with that. Hmm. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, and. Um... Just one more thing about this absolutely demonic shot of Leland's face here. <laughs> like the absolute most terrifying shot of Leland Palmer. Uh, oh, it's awful. Yeah. And the next day, Laura and Leland are sitting together at the table and Laura is just completely inconsolable. She is like shaking and sort of fiddling with her cereal and Leland is just sort of like well what's wrong you know (laughs) like acting very oblivious he follows her up to her room and Laura with an absolutely incredible line reading from Cheryl Lee just sort of stares at him and says stay away from me and um, yeah from there we get this scene with Laura and Bobby on the couch, which is a scene that is elaborated upon a little bit in the uh, missing pieces where she's essentially just asking him for cocaine. (laughs) Like she wants Coke and Bobby is a little bit, a little bit hurt by this. He gets the sense from her that she's just at this point, she's strictly using him as like a connect for cocaine. And um, then she sneaks out of her house to meet James and Leland sees her through the window. And this is all the stuff that gets uh, reincorporated into the return. And, um, you know, again, it's just amazing how differently all this stuff feels (laughs) in in the return, you know, in black and white with none of the music happening whatsoever. I know that we we talked about that uh, quite a bit in our episode about part 17, but... Um, it just really is an interesting test case for how like the same footage in a different context just can feel so so differently um so yeah we all we all know what happens here laura is just really manic with james here james james really has no idea what's going on he is like way over his head here in this situation and she is, you know, verbally abusive towards him, 
Uh, also physically, she like slaps him and gives him the finger and then just completely turns on a dime on him and says like, let's get lost together. Like she is just veering from one end of the spectrum to the other at this point. Like she is just like, she is just careening, careening towards death at this point. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then she sees something behind James and screams. Um, Mm. And we find out in the return that that thing is in fact, Agent Cooper from the future who has come back to quote unquote save her. (laughs) And uh, yeah, this is just, I think, I think, um, you know, my reading before the return on this was always just that like, she was like so crazy out of her mind on drugs that she's like hallucinating like dark figures in the forest and whatnot. But it was a pretty clever twist that they, Intimated that Cooper was the thing that she saw behind James. Yeah, that's one of the most, um, that's one of the biggest, like, jaw drop moments I've had watching anything was watching The Return Part 17 and realizing that, oh my god, that's what she's screaming at? She was screaming at Cooper the whole time? And I think maybe we could have the conversation of, well, is that still Cooper there in this time in the in the version of uh, this scene where she actually does die at the end? Uh, but right. I I don't know I don't I don't know if it is. But I, 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 don't I feel think comfortable it, I don't think it saying, actually makes sense. But I still like it anyways. I don't think it does either, and I don't think that that was the original like purpose of this no, scene. Of I don't not. know. Yeah. Uh, or the screen, I, I I scream. I really don't know, but I don't think so. I don't get the sense that it was. But I think it was like like you said, a very clever uh, addition. Much later to to throw Cooper in there. Although it is interesting that like he shows up there, but then uh, they get back on James's bike and like ride to Sparkwood in twenty one. And I don't know how far that is. Did Cooper walk there? What happened? How did he? <laughs> I don't know. But. But yeah, one of those, one of those really like watching this scene now, having watched the return, uh, it just gives you the goosebumps every time she looks away and screams like, oh, there's Cooper somewhere off screen being creepy in the woods. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, there's also, I think it's, yeah, the, her manic state and her being on drugs and also around this, somewhere in this speech, uh, she says something like, you know, he'll, he'll get to you too, or he knows about you or he doesn't know about you. Or so she's, I think she's, I I, I think it's just like, you know, the evil in the woods or the fact that Bob and these beings are like closing in on her. And, you know, it's just like her freak out moment. And then, yeah, of course, then in the return, they, they work that in, which yeah, is pretty, pretty brilliant. But then, like you said, it doesn't, so if Coop, if it is Cooper there, right, then she doesn't get killed because because he saves right. her, right? But <laughs> right, yeah. But then that, this one, the version's different. Obviously, it's in color in the original one, and there's music. And then in the return, it's edited. I believe it's edited just slightly different, and it's in black and white, and there's no music. Yeah. So. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, great scene. And this is referenced in the, if not the pilot, the 
you know, first or second episode, James being interrogated, like she jumped off the bike at Sparkwood in 21 and she screamed, she loved me. And I'd never seen her like this before. And she was out of her mind. And, you know, so this is kind of bringing it all home again for the, the pilot, uh, or, you know, lining things up with the pilot and everything. Yep. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it makes sense that she actually saw Laura or she actually saw Cooper in this timeline. But again, I just think it's kind of. <laughs> I still. It's to me. It's just neat that they did it anyways. Oh, like yeah. I'm not gonna break my brain trying to like <laughs> make it make perfect sense. It's fine. Um, Laura, she jumps off James's bike and runs away. We get the famous "I love you, James." And she meets with Jacques, Leo, and Ronette out there in the woods. And we see Jacques tying Laura up against her will. She doesn't want to be tied up. Uh, but he does it anyways. And at this point, we see Leland uh, show up through the the window of the, the, the cabin that they're in. He... He, like, knocks Jacques out as Jacques is exiting the cabin, which, I don't know. There's always, like, a little bit of comedy for me in the fact that Leland is dressed, like, at his most dad-like, in his most dad-like fashion. Like, he's wearing this, like, sweater vest getup, and he's just, like, kicking the shit out of, uh, out of Jacques. Not, maybe, perhaps not the most entirely believable thing that Leland could just like physically overpower a, a man of Jacques' size, but what are you gonna do? Um, he trips him like it's a cartoon. He just like sticks his foot out in front of the door, and he's like, "Whoa!" and tumbles. <laughs> yeah, and then he just starts, <laughs> he just kicking, starts kicking him in the head. Yeah, exactly. Then we we just get an absolutely horrific series of scenes here wherein Leland and Laura are just screaming at each other like face to face like she is just absolutely horrified by his presence there she knows who he is she knows what's probably about to happen to her and we get we get some pretty amazing shots of Leland leading Laura and Ronette through the forest here I love this. This is so goddamn creepy. And it has one of Lynch's favorite devices that we mention again and again, which is just like a spotlight of indeterminate origin. Like they're, <laughs> they're just, they're what, like he's leading them through the woods. They're crying. They're screaming. He has this totally maniacal, maniacal look on his face. And there's just like this weird, like flashlight effect that, <laughs> that is on them that just, Adds it just gives it a real level of surreal surreality to to it, and um, I don't know. It's like they get to the the train car, and it sounds to me like the ceiling fan sound is happening throughout the scene. There's just like some sort of like whoosh 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 happening throughout the entirety of it, mm-hmm. and Laura sees Bob in her own reflection in the mirror. Which is like a bit of foreshadowing as to like what what they're planning to do here, like this sort of body jump that uh, <laughs> that could potentially take place. Leland produces the diary pages, and he says to her, "I always thought you knew it was me." Um, 
Which, I don't know, like, is that supposed to, is, like, I don't know, like, does her knowing it was him make it better? I don't know. <laughs> I don't really understand why Leland would, would say that. I, um, I think it, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if, if that's Leland or if that's Bob at that point or, or if it matters. Right. Right. But it's like. Yeah, you. You can uh, look at, I think you can chalk that up to kind of your, what you were saying before about the, you know, when he starts crying and goes into Laura's room and I'm sorry. And it's like excuse, abuser, abuser excuses. You know what I mean? Like, I think this is, it's just an, another yeah. line of like, well, hey, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, I, you know, I do really love you or I, th- I thought you knew it was me the whole time and you were okay, yeah. okay with it. And yeah. now you're not okay with it. Like right. what, what's, yeah, the, that's what's the deal? I mean, it's a creepy right. and yeah. awful and, you know, again, like keep blurring that line between Leland and Bob and, you know, what's really going on. Um, but yeah, that, that, yeah, no, that, that line that's was a, always. That's a good point. I never really thought about that. That um, like maybe yeah. he was just saying like, because we know that supposedly like he's been molesting her since she was twelve, right? And so that's his way of saying like, oh well, you know, I thought you were cool with it or something, or like <laughs> maybe implying or maybe you were like implying some level of consent, which is like incredibly right. sick. Oh right, so this line um, always got to me. Always got to me. This line did. Yeah, you're you're right. I never really um, I never put it together in that way. But yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, then, curiously, Ronette sees an angel standing next to her, and her ropes are seemingly magically cut, and she's uh, able to escape briefly. Um, and this is the intercut with all this is Mike running towards the train car with the the Owl Cave ring in tow. He reaches in, throws the ring into the train car. Laura puts on the ring. And, um, yeah, I, I think there's a line here from Leland where he says, uh, don't make me do this, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, yeah, the way that this is depicted, her actual murder is really, really something. Um, we just get, like, these impressionistic flashes of like her bloody mouth and uh the knife stabbing downwards like from her point of view um like shots of leland taking the necklace and all of this is sort of represented in flashes it's like um it's like it's all happening really fast and it's really chaotic and it's really dramatic we've got this pretty atypical music happening during all this it's like this um it's like this dissonant choir music that's happening here that i don't think we ever see again from twin peaks and that i don't really associate with lynch in general like i think this is the one time we hear something like this it just like adds this level of really dark grandeur grandeur to this scene i think um and yeah, so Leland, he, he takes her and he wraps her in plastic and we get just that really brief chilling shot of him as Bob seen through the plastic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you guys have any comments on the, like just the way that this scene here is represented, you know, cause 
um, like the the actual killing of Laura Palmer is like a pretty pretty big moment in, in the history of the series, and I I think the way that it's shown here is like appropriately horrifying. Yeah, it's something that like how do you not only have you known that the well. I mean, everyone knows that Laura Palmer dies, who is, well, most of us, most of us who watched the show before, most people watching this knew Laura was going to die. So, like, how do, how do you make that moment uh, that people, not only have they known it was coming for whatever, two and a half hours, but you also know that it's, you know, you've known that for, for years if you watched the show. Uh, so how do you make it have, like, this, um, this, like, how do you make it feel, look, and sound important? And I think that Lynch really... Um, really nailed it here with this with this choir, uh, and I think that it it's not simply this like choir. There's also like kind of like low dissonant drone underneath it that uh, blends with the blends with it like the the, the low end of it so well that it, it just like it really grounds the whole scene and you know the depiction of it is so um frazzled and it's it's achieved through shots that are um force you to sort of put the full picture together in your own head which i think is much more um disturbing than uh than like a maybe like a literal depiction of it even though this is a literal murder and we are seeing that it's like broken up in a way that is uh, making us sort of use our imagination to fill in the blanks, which is something that that happens all the time with Twin Peaks and Lynch in general. So the the use of sound and the use of the of the of the visuals, and then just um, the this being juxtaposed to Ronette seeing the angel, I think is really powerful because you you see someone saved in some way, and then you see someone sacrificed and back to back and it really sort of like i think that 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 added a little bit to uh the gravity of her murder and i don't i don't know what ronette was saying that my subtitles gave me nothing for that and i've rewinded it a bunch of times i can make out certain words it sounds like she says father or like i don't know if she's like praying or what but i can't make out what ronette's saying before that angel pops up um but either way i thought that it it really uh, combined with all of the things that that go into like the literal depiction of the murder, uh, just made, just gave so much more of a weight to uh, to this character who you by all accounts knew was going to die, and she even maybe knew she was going to die, uh, and seeing that depicted in such a way is really it's kind of it's really heartbreaking, is what it is. Yeah, totally. I had the same. Uh, it's funny you brought that up because that's exactly how I remember seeing this for the first time in that the death scene. And in my mind, like I was just completely mind fried at that point. And I remember the the murder itself really stuck with me as like you know, something, you know, really, really brutal. And that might have been the most brutal thing that I've had seen up to that point, maybe. Or, you know, I just remember being like totally shook by it. And then it wasn't till, and I, you know, and that kind of stayed with me after a few viewings, but it wasn't until like I, I got it on DVD or, or, you know, years later, like, yeah, totally. There's, there's nothing going on. Everything cuts to black. You don't even see a knife or a hammer or whatever it is. Uh, it's the psycho thing. 
the shower scene, right? Like it's it's basically it's basically all in your mind. You don't actually see a knife touching skin, and it's the same kind of thing. Like you just get these flashes and the music and the context and everything was like, wow, like no, this is most of this is in my head. <laughs> you know, the reason I'm so disturbed is because it's it's in my head. And, um, yeah, as far as, uh, Ronette goes, I, I'm in the same boat. Don't know what she says. I assume it's a, it's a prayer. It feels like she's kind of got a rhythm to it. And she does just say, yeah, she says something about the father and the something or whatever. I just assume that she's, she assumes she's going to be killed next. So she's just <laughs> saying, saying a prayer, which, and then ironically that angel shows up. So. Leland takes Laura's body out of the car, wrapped in plastic. He sees Ronette laying there, assumes that she's dead, and goes and dumps Laura's body in the water. And um, from there, Leland, like we alluded to before, approaches Glastonbury Grove and goes into the lodge. And we get that very brief shot of him in the, the black and white makeup that we saw Laura in earlier when she was talking to Harold. Um, also very reminiscent of uh, a moment with Wyndham Earl from season two. And once Leland enters the lodge, he meets with Mike and the arm who are just sort of looks like they've just been waiting there for him. And he does this, he does this really weird move where he just leans forward really far. Like, Michael Jackson in the Smooth Criminal video. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly like that. <laughs> impossible not to think about. Uh, and then he <laughs> he floats up in the air, sort of separate from Mike, or uh, for Bob, rather. Like, Bob is just sort of standing nearby as Leland floats in the air. Mike and the arm, they demand their Garmin Bosia simultaneously from Bob and then Bob does this really striking move where he touches Leland's abdomen that is like covered in blood and like trans like transfers it into his hand and then does this move where he th- it's like he throws the blood down on the floor and this image of this shot of Bob his arm extended with the blood flowing across the red room floor is one of my favorites. I love it. I, it's part of the, um, it's one of the images that they included in the, uh, the criterion package for this film. And I, I really appreciated that because it just looks badass. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then we get a pretty gross shot of the arm, like just sipping gingerly on the, uh, on the creamed corn. Uh, and then a close-up shot of the monkey behind a mask. And I think um, for a long time there was a misconception that the Judy, or that the monkey was saying Judy, but I don't think that's actually the case. I think somebody like came out and corrected that, right? What's it saying? It says Judy on the one that I want. No, so so that the... The I believe the controversy is that it does say Judy, one of the incarnations, either the Blu-ray box set or 
I'm not sure. One, I think this has been is corrected on the Criterion, but one version at some point said Judy, and then in parentheses, uh, Philip Jeffrey's voice. And and right, that, I remember that that's yeah. someone asked Sabrina Sutherland if that is Philip Jeffrey's voice, and she said no. I guess so. Uh, that's that's all I know. I always assumed it was Philip Jeffrey's voice because he's the one that brought up Judy in the first place. And that always led me to believe that he might have been the monkey or that's his voice coming from that other side. Like he's still, uh, you know, he's among them as opposed to the real world type mm-hmm. type thing. Mm-hmm. But then she's like, no, 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 that's not that's not Philip Jeffrey's voice. That's just uh, the the monkey is supposed to be saying it. Some something like that. So the monkey does huh. the monkey does say Judy, but uh, you are not supposed to think that it's Philip Jeffrey's. But I totally think it's Philip Jeffrey's <laughs> for the. <laughs> <laughs> in, in my head in my head ca- yeah 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 in my head canon or whatever it is philip jeffries or that's at least a reference back to the beginning of the movie kind of trying to right. more or less put a but again we had no idea what judy was you know i just always thought it was a throwback to the beginning of the the movie and that you know philip jeffries i've been to one of their meetings blah 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 like <clears throat> like Okay, so this is a shot of maybe because Jeffries is bouncing around in and out of time and this and that. Maybe he's taking a new form. Maybe he is the monkey thing. So yeah, I I don't think I'm. I just I love the idea of Jeffries being the monkey so much that I'm just willing to believe anything. Right. That is. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the uh, Philip Jeffries is the monkey theory. So I don't care what Sabrina Sutherland says. I'm just going to roll with that because why not? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Listen, if he can become a, a fucking like a steam kettle or whatever, he can be a monkey. All right. Right. You can't tell me otherwise. Before he was a teapot, he was a monkey. So what's the big, what's the problem? <laughs> what's the problem here? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Prove me wrong. Before that, he was David yeah. Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> yes yes and then we get one of my favorite endings in the history of cinema i gotta be honest here um laura with cooper his hand on her shoulder um the angels nearby looking on Shirley's performance here is just all-time great in my opinion just these these tears of i guess what you could read as joy or relief you know her pain has ended you know she's no longer she's no longer being threatened by bob you know she's she's here with cooper who is by her side she's under the protection of the angels you know she's um she isn't you know all coked out and disheveled you know she looks really beautiful and her hair is done and her makeup is done and um i just i find this ending you know if if this had been the ending you know for all time with twin peaks uh, i i would have 
been totally happy with that because I think it is just incredibly, um, I think it's incredibly affecting and, and brilliant. Yeah, it is in a lot of ways. The It's, it's more of an ending. Like it ends. It ends mysteriously, but it ends. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really leave much thought of what happens next. It's like, what happens next? Well, Twin Peaks season one happens next. So it's like the thing, uh, you know, the cliffhanger from season two still remains. But as far as like uh, an ending goes, yeah, this is a real fitting one. And um, I've really gone back and forth on, on you know, what, what the what the meaning of this ending is. And I mean meaning in the sense of like, what is the emotional meaning? Not like a literal meaning, like right. not literally what happened, but what's the emotional gravity of, of, of the tears and the joy in the angels. And I think it goes back to our conversation about part 18, Nick, where um, we were saying that it, in, in a lot of ways, this, this ending of fire walk with me is the quote unquote happy ending because um like if there's something if there's something in twin peaks that is about balance which i think there is i think there is like certain characters like the like the fireman or like uh the log lady seem to be talking about like this union or this balance between you know nature and and humans and and all of this and lara's own agency and her decision to put on the ring and be killed um Although it's dark and it's, you know, it, it's it's horrific and it it is bloody and 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 just in all other ways negative, um, it ends with her experiencing grace or or she sees the angel that she didn't see in the train car that Ronette did see. So this in the angel that disappeared from her 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 painting. Uh, symbolizing her loss of hope and her, her, or like the, like the log lady said it, where all goodness is gone. Um, she came very close to that where she, you know, Bob would have, uh, inhabited her, but she avoided that. She, she didn't end in that way. Even though it, it ended with her death, uh, she chose that. And that was one of her few, uh, moments of agency. And it results in her being, um, by all accounts of what we see, happy in some sense. And that Dale Cooper's subversion of this is, uh, like, the sort of emblematic of his hubris, uh, that gets explored a lot in, in The Return. So, while this ending, like, like, everything leading up to it is just terrifying we have the train car scene and we have this red room stuff where bob seems to be uh like harvesting all of leland's garmin bozia for mike in the arm and you're like wait are these are all these characters evil are they good like what is happening if there's so much tension and uh negativity and then it ends this way it ends with uh, Dale smiling gently at Lara and Lara looking across the, the room and, and seeing her angel and she smiles and she's free and she is no longer suffering and it just ends. It ends with a shot of her smiling face, um, not of her whispering mysteriously into Dale's ear again in you know, restarting some sort of cycle. It just ends. And I think that there's um, this ending 
is really fundamental to understanding what Dale Cooper undoes by quote-unquote saving Lara because we witness her being saved in the religious sense kind of here like the whole angels absolve her of of her suffering thing and then Dale saves her and it results in the Carrie Page storyline which of course we've spoken at length about but um, truly one of my favorite endings to any film I've ever seen just because of how it really makes you wonder like what did I just watch for the last you know, hour and a half, two hours I've been watching this. Um, and how does it all add up? And, and it makes every every rewatch, like it makes me be sort of looking out for clues as to why she could possibly uh, experience some sort of grace from that scenario. But yeah, one absolutely one of my favorite endings of anything. Awesome. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to add. I basically agree with all of that. Um, this is a great ending. This is Laura finding peace. This was also uh, the return notwithstanding. It's again, Twin Peaks fans didn't like this movie too much because, you know, the show ended on the, the, you know, Bob being inside Cooper and Cooper being trapped in the red room and people wanted some resolution to that, I think. And which this movie doesn't provide, but you know, this does, this still kind of wraps up Twin Peaks in a way, even though I, couldn't see it for years but looking back on it it's like well cooper is trapped in the red room that's why he's able to comfort laura here when she dies that's why they have the shared dream you know what i mean so like this does kind of you you know this is all we had for years was just the original show and and then this movie so the even though this isn't you know a like a like a a solid and complete ending it it kind of is you know um so but yeah the the story i'm again i'm so glad that they when they did the return they went back and they they really made this movie a huge part of the just the understanding of it or the mythology of it or you know it's like the the way I see it, just to wrap this up on my end, like um, the people didn't like the return because Laura is kind of like the original series, in my opinion, like she's reduced to like a specter or a phantom or an object. And then the gold orb thing, people were like, well, if she's like predestined to it takes away her if she's a gold orb of superpower then it takes away her agency and what she went through in fire walk with me and like i don't really think that it does because it all it all ties back into this movie anyway so i i it's kind of hard to explain. Like, I don't think that what happened, yeah, no, I, I, don't I don't think, think that the orb the, thing, I don't, I don't think that it contradicts anything that we see either in the run or in this film. Yeah. I, th- I think that this is all like, it doesn't, it doesn't really affect the way that I read it or react emotionally to it. Yeah. I, I just, there's been, I've, I've read a few things. It's like, well, you know, Hey, like if, if this is all pre-planned out, then, then she then she suffered for nothing or what's the deal and i'm just like no nah, like laura still has her own makes her own decisions and whether there's a gold orb inside of her or not or 
whatever the the case may be like this movie's like the testimonial testament to her struggle and nothing that happens in the return negates this story in fact it strengthens it in a way so anyway the way this movie is the central point the linchpin pardon the pun of of all of this stuff is the way i see it or at least that's how it's been Mm -hmm. with the return coming out and the books and the context and looking back over the whole body of work for 30 years or whatever like this is this is what it's all about yeah it's it's essential for sure like especially in light of the return i think like so much so that i think it actually ties back into the return more than probably most of the the original run of the show honestly like it's i couldn't really imagine watching the return without this film as a foundation just because it's like nearly everything that we see in this film that felt like a one-off ultimately got elaborated upon to some degree in the return um yep Mm -hmm. and uh yeah it is like a huge source material for it and i don't know that like your i don't think your experience is going to be fundamentally ruined if you watch uh the return before you see fire walk with me but i think you're going to be a lot more confused for sure in what is already a confusing viewing but um I think it might have the same effect where if you if you watch the return and you're like, What the fuck did I just see? And then you go <laughs> and watch Fire Walk with me, you're like, Oh, okay. So this kinda makes sense and then you go back and watch the return. I don't know. Kinda like what I did with, with Fire Walk with me. Like, wait, what the hell happened? And then you watch Fire Walk with me again, and you're like, Oh, that's right and then you go back to the return and you're like, Yeah, okay. Still doesn't explain who Raymond Rowe is, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I'm trying to imagine somebody watching the return like and that was their first exposure to Twin Peaks, like because you know that's going to happen, right? Like you know that there's going to be people who must be yeah. watch season three first and then go backwards. And I'm just like completely fascinated by the experiences of those people. I, I think uh, we 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 need to get somebody like that on the podcast at some point. We need to track that yeah, person down. Just thinking and, that Abs- and, uh, absolutely and have a talking to about them. If that person, uh, yeah, like you said, I'm sure it's happened, but. If there's somebody who doesn't know anything about Twin Peaks and their first exposure is watching the Showtime show and and coming away with coming away going man that was super cool like I want to know more about Twin Peaks like yeah I want to I want to meet that yes. I want to meet that person <laughs> I know they yes, I know they exist. Call this, is, this is the official call if you if you watched the return before anything else please email us 119podcast at gmail.com um but yeah um i i don't have too much more to say about this film i think we pretty much covered like all the angles that i really care to talk about with it i mean obviously doesn't mean that there isn't more to say about it but yeah i think that this film is um i think it's really i think it's really great I think it's really um, emotionally potent. I think it's just really well made generally. And um, it's definitely like one of my favorite Lynch films, like probably top five, Um, you know, which is, uh, which is a difficult list to crack (laughs) considering he has like multiple 
masterpieces under his belt. But um, I don't know where would you like where would you guys rank this in terms of like Lynch films? It's it's in my top five. Um, it's in my it's in my top ten favorite films. Period. Um, just I, I guess that, like that there there's like a. Um, like that's like a bit of a loaded thing to say because it it, ha- it carries my whole fandom of Twin Peaks with it. But like you were saying, Jeremiah, I think that Fire Walk with Me is sort of the the central uh, like piece that everything else hinges upon, and so it definitely uh, is among my favorite movies. Period. And um, not there's not much I'd put before it. Uh, Mulholland Drive. Maybe Blue Velvet, um, maybe Inland Empire, but probably not. Um, and then it's right there; it's right up there as one of my favorites. Nice, yeah. I don't. Um, it's tough. I gotta. I I really don't know. I don't know where I rank it. The problem is, it's like this was my first exposure to. I mean, that's not true. I saw. Did I see Blue Velvet first? I don't know. But as far as my introduction to Twin Peaks, like this was it. And now that we've gone all this time and the return and now it's like, like I said, this is the central thing. This defines Twin Peaks for me. It's what uh, I think it connects everything. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive and Firewalk with me, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's, these are probably, those are probably my top three. So this one, you know, and I there's there's stuff about this movie that still feels incomplete at places, but you know, it's just kind of like transcended all of that stuff and I I don't know, it's hard to explain. Super complicated, but uh I do love mm-hmm. it. I I watch it all the time. It's it's great. Cool. Well, on that note, Jeremiah, thanks for taking so much time to uh talk with us about this thing we're really really happy that we had you on here um just your your knowledge of the show your attention to detail um you were the perfect person to to have on here and um i i really want to thank you for for hopping on with us hey thanks it was super great i uh love this movie love talking about twin peaks um i'm glad we broke it up in two parts um uh, cause there's, there's just so much to talk about. So, I uh, really appreciate you guys having me on and, um, you know, maybe we can do something similar capacity down the road. Yeah, man. I, uh, yeah, anytime. Um, so yeah, that's going to do it for us for this episode. Um, you know, if you have any thoughts about anything that we've said, or if you're, uh, one of those, uh, if you're one of the, those rare breed of people who saw the return first, please email us at 119podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at 119podcast. Uh, my name is Nick. You can find me on Twitter at strenuousorb. Dylan is at piffdylan. And Jeremiah is at takethering430. Uh, and, of course, you'll also um, owe it to yourself, if you're a Twin Peaks fan, to check out Jeremiah's great youtube channel take the ring where he has a handful of fantastic videos about a variety of subjects and um 
do you uh, have an update that you want to give people about your next video or anything like that? Uh, n- not exactly. Just um, there's there's not tons and tons of content on there, but I'm, this is a this is a long project, and um, people really like the graphics and sound quality and different you know the writing and stuff. And uh, so the response has been great. Uh, it's just tough because like I can't. I can't crank these out super fast. Like I, I spend time writing them. I spend time putting together the graphics packages and things. And, um, so, uh, just be patient. The next one, it might be a few more weeks, you know, but, uh, there's three episodes on there. Plus the talk about Judy, which is kind of the season three theory. And, um, so I do talk a lot about firewalk with me. I just put out the episode three was the Laura Palmer episode. And I talk a lot about Firewalk with me, and um, but yeah, nothing, nothing new. I'm doing these as fast as I can. Uh, appreciate everybody's <laughs> support. Yeah. All right. Well, that's gonna do it for us. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us for these couple of episodes. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know when we're gonna pick up this podcast again. Uh, I'm sure we're not done, but um, you know, I'm, I I hope that. You guys have enjoyed listening to us talk about the show, and I, I hope you'll continue to uh, join us in the future. Thanks a lot, guys. Peace. <laughs>